And uh, one of the employees at the bank, Krogstad, if there was ever a bad guy's name, it's definitely Krogstad. everyone, and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We're so glad to be with you for another week and another week closer to the end of the season. It is coming. It's looming. We only got a couple left. What is it like? This is the fourth, fourth to last one. I think I that we're doing fourth to last one. We are yeah. we are closely nearing in, but we have just a really exciting slew of plays ahead of us before we get there. So fear not. Some great conversations about great plays are still going to be hitting your eardrums between now and the end of the season. Yeah, absolutely. This has been such a fun season. A lot of new plays and playwrights for both the podcast and for me, at least. Uh, a lot of a lot of first time reads for me, so it's been great. And uh, looking forward to wrapping up the season in style. We're going to continue today, though, doing a, a return playwright for us, actually. That's right. Today we are beginning the first of a little two part. It's not really a series. Yeah, like it's like venture. a two part episode. <laughs> it's really just for fun. There's just yeah. there's no structure. It's just for fun. We saw these plays. One play by a playwright we knew we were going to return to very shortly. One play by a playwright we both love. We've discussed before and has a very popular new play out. And those two plays just sort of fit together, lock, stock, and barrel. So it's like a mini themed month right here right. up against the end of the season. Of course, in all the mystery, you've already seen the episode title today we're talking about a doll's house by henrik ibsen yep the the famous play you know frequently included in anthologies from the father of realism and drama um is one of one of ibsen's titles so we'll be talking about that one today and then we'll be following it up next week with a doll's house part two by lucas nath Hnaith. Yeah, we did Hnaith. that the last time we talked about a Hnaith play. <laughs> the HN gets a little bit lost in my right, pronunciation. Right. The Hnaith. Lucas Hnaith's Doss House Part 2. It's hugely popular right now. Uh, his play there is... I think more popular than The Christians was when it came out. I mean, he is sweeping the nation with that script. So we knew we definitely wanted to talk about that one. And we definitely wanted to do another Ibsen play, given how important Ibsen is in the landscape of, of theater history. So why not do them right next to each other? Doll's House, Doll's House Part 2. It's it's not really like we're going to make them one discussion. We'll discuss each play separately, but they are right. obviously related <laughs> plays. <laughs> yeah, obviously Part 2 is informed by the original. So, so we'll be doing them in order, and likely they will feed into each other a little bit. Though probably today it will stand on its own as just a discussion of the Doll's House. Yeah, and then after those two parters, the excitement for the end of the season is still not done because Jackson is going to be doing the special guest episode this season. Yes, yes, I'm super excited to get to do it. We'll be talking to Maria Booth, who is, in fact, my sister. Um, she lives over in Ireland, uh, in Belfast, and I'm excited to get to talk to her. We'll be doing uh, the play once, so uh, a, a song, uh, or a play about a singer-songwriter in, in Ireland. So uh, if you've seen the movie, if you've seen the play, we're going to be talking around that play. And Maria is an exceptionally talented singer-songwriter, as Jackson said, living in Ireland. And as we looked at 
the play once for a special guest. We just we couldn't really even possibly imagine somebody better suited to talk about a musical about singer songwriters in Ireland. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> She's there being a singer songwriter. So you can look forward to that after this uh, this uh, fun journey into a doll's house. And then we'll wrap it up with the last play of the season. We'll save that name of that script for our patrons. They get to know a little bit earlier than the rest of you, which is a good time to say if you're not a patron and you want to know the titles of scripts earlier than you're normally getting them, which is usually the Wednesday before, you should consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash no script podcast. On that website, there are a couple of different tiers that you can choose to support the show. Each tier is a monthly amount that Patreon will automatically deduct from your account and send to us because we are really interested in having your support. We have a lot of great patrons right now that help cover the cost of producing the show. The, The show could not exist without the patrons we have right now. And we love to do the show. We love it. It's just not free to do. And neither Jackson or I are rich men. So we are in need of your support. If you are not supporting the show already, please consider heading over there. Patreon.com slash no script podcast. The lowest tier is just a dollar a month. And even that amount is hugely helpful to us. When you become a patron, you get to know scripts early. You get to see Jackson and I commenting on other kinds of art on the Patreon page and suggesting other scripts to our folks over there. So it's a nice little patron board that you can check out once you become a patron. We really, really encourage you to do it. And we're so thankful for those who already are patrons. Please consider checking it out. Patreon.com slash no script podcast. Yes, thank you all so much for being a part of uh, making NoScript possible. Thanks for all of our patrons over there. We'll see you at NoScript. <laughs> Patreon.com <laughs> slash NoScript podcast. Oh, it was so close. <laughs> all righty. It's time to go back to the script. Back to the script. Okay, here we go into Doll's house. Um, uh, Ibsen is a very famous playwright, as we've said before. Um, Henrik Ibsen, a lot of people call him the father of modern realist plays. Um, the, the realism as a genre was coming into its own in the late 19th century, and Ibsen was a very prolific p- playwright during that time. Um, this play, A Doll's House, had its uh, first pr- production at the at Copenhagen Theater, the Royal Theater in Copenhagen, in 1879. And uh, this was after kind of a, a series of pretty popular plays by Ibsen. Um, and uh, he was kind of in the height of his his uh, his uh, I don't know dominance of the Swedish theater. His, pa- his the powers, time. the his height power. of his powers. They were over nine thousand. They were over nine thousand. <laughs> um, and so this play especially got uh, translated into English and, and German. Notably, um, we're going to get into some of the specifics of the play, but it got a different ending in the German play for a little while uh, that Ibsen uh, wrote so that no one else would write. The play ends um, culturally uh, sad <laughs> at the end of the play. And culturally offensive, culturally yeah. inappropriate. Mm-hmm. So he had a, a, a German play, a playhouse that was doing it, wanted a different ending. He wrote the different ending. That ending dropped off quickly because it was not as satisfying as the true ending of the play, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, it had uh, American production in 1883 and then a London production in 1889. Um, and, uh, and, it's, and it's had a long list of, of productions after that. This is a very famous play. A lot of famous people have been a part of the production um, uh, Jane Fonda has played the title character in this play, Nora. Uh, Anthony Hopkins was was in a film version of the play, um, and, and it continues to be produced. It's a continues to be uh, put on because it is a really important play. Um, 
it's a play that deals a lot with feminist themes, with the role of women in society. And it's important to note, we're going to get into these themes because they're, they're really rich and, and kind of uh, uh, at least 100 years ahead of their time in some ways. Um, and that was especially true when it was written, when there were ideas that like there were two different uh, sets of moral codes for men and women. Um, and that, that men had one moral calling and women had another moral calling. And as you can probably imagine, the women's moral calling was very about being a wife and a mother and the men's moral calling was about being a part of society um and and so part of what uh, Ibsen is writing about is that dynamic, and he works against it in a lot of ways in the play. In in early ways, so uh, if you read the play, we're gonna we're gonna get into the themes. If you read the play, you'll be uh, you might be a little disappointed with the level it gets to, and yet it's still a moving in a very distinct progressive way, especially when you take into account these prevailing societal problems of the time. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to picture it now because society has evolved so positively in so many ways in terms of women's rights that that it's hard to imagine this play received the kind of scathing protests that it did when it was open. I mean, theaters refused to stage it because right. of the, the, the outlook on traditional marriage customs, on a woman's role in the home. Um, and, and Ibsen actually, the, the story goes, wrote the play based on somebody he really knew who actually had many of the events in the play happen to her. The need to forge a fake contract, the need to, you know, her husband sort of blowing up when he discovers it. It's sort of a based loosely on that true story. And then many of Ibsen's famous women roles, especially Hedda Gabler in, in this play, Nora, are loosely based on his wife, Susanna who was a, a very progressive woman for her day and age. And the story goes, as he was writing it, she was reading it, and he hadn't quite written the end of the play yet. And Susanna famously is reading the play and says, if you don't let Nora go, then I'll have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's a great That's... story. It, it might not be true, but I sure hope it is. I yeah, sure it might, hope it is. It might as well be true. We'll, we'll call it true. We'll call yeah. it true. There you go. So uh, I'm going to do just a quick synopsis of the play. This is one of those plays that many, many people know, have read for school, have read for uh, for uh, maybe a, like a theater history class. They've read just for fun. It's one of the most famous Ibsen plays. Hedda Gabler is his most produced play, but this is the next one in line by not all that much. The play revolves around a family, Torvald and Nora and their children. They live and they, Torvald has recently received a promotion. And we learned that this promotion, and he's going to take over running a bank. And uh, one of the employees at the bank, Krogstad, if there's ever a bad guy's name, it's definitely Krogstad. <laughs> Krogstad shows up at their home. And he's there to plead his case. Apparently, he's going to be fired. He has some, uh, somewhat of a checkered history in terms of uh, his reliability. He apparently forged a loan a long time ago, and that part of his reputation has stuck with him ever since. So as Torvald is planning to take over the bank, he's planning to release Krogstad for his moral failings, let's say. Krogstad is pretty desperate to maintain his position at the bank because he's trying to rebuild his reputation. In order to maintain his position, Krogstad decides to blackmail the main character of the show, Nora. Now, 
we learn over the course of the whole play, I'm going to tell the story in one chunk, but we learn it stretched out. We, what, what happened was that when Nora and Torvald were first married, Torvald was taken very ill. And in order to get better, his doctor said that he needed to take sort of an extended holiday in the South in better weather. But Torvald is a, a spendthrift. He or not a spe- the opposite of a spendthrift. He's a, he's a penny pincher. He he does not want Nora to spend any money really at all. And so the idea of an extended holiday vacation not really going to work for him. So Nora comes up with a way. This is all prior to the action of the play to get the money for herself. Uh, originally in the play, she claims she got it from her father. We learn later, of course, that she took out a loan from Krogstad, who she knew from the village where she grew up in. Um, she reveals all this to her friend Christine, who is a friend from uh, childhood who's come to visit her now. She's actually moved to the city where Nora and Torvald live to get a position at Torvald's bank. So Nora took out this loan from Krogstad, again, prior to the action of the play, and she's been slowly repaying it. She did this behind her husband's back, and she did this, we learn, by forging her father's signature. Now, this is important because this is how Krogstad decides to blackmail her. Because she forged his signature, she is guilty of a fraud. And, in sort of a convenient truth, this is the same... Uh, mistake, moral failing that Krogstad made earlier in his life that has so damaged his reputation. So for this to get out that Nora perpetuated this fraud, especially as a woman behind her husband's back, would be very damaging to her reputation and her husband's might even land her in serious legal trouble. So Krogstad says, you better get my position secure at the bank or I'm going to let everybody know. Um, what, what ends up happening in the play is that Christine and Krogstad uh, rekindle an old flame that sort of changes Krogstad's heart about it, and he decides not, in fact, to release this bond. He gives her bond back to her. She pays off the loan, and they're free of it. However, before that, Torvald discovers the lie. He discovers the blackmail, and he, in a sort of a furious tirade, accuses Nora of all kinds of horrible things, being an amoral person, not fit to raise children, that they're going to basically live as husband and wife in the house, but not really. Their their marriage will be a lovely... I mean, he just goes on this rant. And then the good news, is, oh, it's, not, 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 it's all going to be fine. Krogstad gave us the bond back. Nobody's going to be in all that much trouble. And his tone changes. But Nora has sort of seen behind the mask and in the controversial end of the play she gives one of the great speeches of of dramatic literature and tells Torvald that she's leaving him and the children and she's going to go out into the world and sort of find her own way discover who she is for herself that's the very basic general top right. view sweep of the play yeah, yeah, it, it it is. I mean, that's the that's the big beats of it. What what the the kind of pressure cooker is 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 three days of Nora dealing with this reality that the that the blackmail is coming coming uh, to light in some way. This threat from Krogstad that it's coming to light, and we get to see her 
uh, uh, try a variety of tactics to try to uh, address that. Um, she, you know, she talks to their friend, uh, Dr. Rank, who's in and out of the play the whole time um, and kind of has some affection for her to various degrees of propriety. Um, and so we see her trying to uh, explore um, how how to get help from him and whether it's appropriate to get help from him and and all sorts of kind of subterfuges that that uh, trying to maintain this veneer of of a proper family. Um, uh, she puts herself through a lot to try to maintain that veneer, um, which makes that that moment when uh, uh, Torvald kind of blows up all the more damaging at the end of the play. That that underneath his layer is is also an unrest that is that is not going to uh, in the end bring about this doll's house that they're living in. So the the controversial piece of the play is, of course, Nora claiming power in the marriage at the end of the show and leaving her husband and children uh, in a sort of a cold, detached manner. That's not me prescribing that on the script. That's how it's written in the stage directions. And this is why theaters refused to stage it in 1879. The uh, In Germany, where he had to write the alternate ending, and, and the alternate ending is, of course, that she returns and all is well. Um, in Germany... Well, and- the- yeah, yeah, and specifically, she returns for her children's sake. Like that's that's the level that he would go to. He, there, I don't believe there was even like too many lines at the end of the play. Instead, she returns through the empty door and collapses by the door of her children's room, thus saying, "I couldn't possibly leave my children, so I guess I'm staying now." And, and it's it, the reason why he ends up writing that, as Jackson said, he wrote it so that other people wouldn't write a new ending for the show for him. He wanted that control, but also because like the most famous actress. In in all of Germany at the time, right. who, of course, was the one they wanted to play Nora, the big part. She refused the part when she read the script because she said, I would never leave my children. She didn't want the reputation of playing a role where the right. character left her husband and children. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, like uh, this is still at the kind of the height of star power amongst theaters. So this was a, a, a clearly an ask um, that then eventually people didn't like. As I said in the context, after a couple months of it running, she actually wound up playing the original ending um, because because it just didn't work. It didn't work to have that that sort of uh, false ending at the end of the play. So it's a it's a very progressive play in its view of how Nora takes power at the end of the show. And there's kind of two interesting things about that. The first is that uh, Ibsen at one point in his life, and I'm a little fuzzy on the details, so I'm going to be a little bit vague about it. He, he gave some sort of speech at some sort of women's rights event. And in the speech, he made very clear that writing this feminist work about a woman claiming power in a marriage in a society where women had no power was not really his intention. He sort of stumbled unintentionally into this feminist icon play. So we have that part of the story. At the same time, this is a quote that Ibsen wrote while he was writing a doll's house. He says, a woman cannot be herself in modern society since it is an exclusively male society with laws made by men, prosecutors and judges who assess feminine conduct from a masculine standpoint. Now, that sounds like a pretty feminist statement for a guy who claimed the feminist overtones of the play are unintentional. 
Right, right, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, within within the system that he's working in, it's it's quite feminist, and and that's that's brought out in the play too. Um, Nora Nora cannot grasp that there is something wrong with her forging her father's signature because her father, we learn, was dying at the time. Part of the part of the drama of the reveal is that the uh, signature is dated three days after her father died. Her father died on, on September 28th, and uh, the, the signature is dated October 2nd. And so, Krogstad helps us understand why that could possibly happen, because she doesn't live near her father, and so it took a while for the news to arrive. Right, right, right. But she she admits that she did it because she did not want to cause her father anxiety and and stress as he was dying in the in the time. And she also did it to be sure that uh, Torvald took a break when he needed. He was he was going through poor health. He couldn't function at the level that he was doing anymore. So she took it upon herself to make this trip away to Italy happen to save him um, uh, from his 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 poor health. And it's important to note that the thing that gets Nora in trouble to begin with is the male-dominated society where a woman would not have been allowed to take out a loan without her husband or her father's signature. And right. just in just a wild, frankly unbelievable thing for somebody like me who didn't live this, that was still the case forever in American society. Like, it's not uh -huh. all that long ago that a mm. woman couldn't even get a credit card without her husband's signature. So a play like A Doll's House, where the core drama, blackmail of the play, is based on that societal imbalance, held real specific relevance for till not that long ago. Yeah, no, it's 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 still very real in just like a couple decades ago sort of way. <laughs> um so so yeah, the that 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 big theme of her trying to trying to operate from uh, a sense of what she feels called to do and being blocked by the male dominated society um uh, via via the the laws that don't seem like they're they're taking into account a, a good a good thing that i read was a lot of the men specifically torvald but then the society around are moralistic rather than moral um, they they will will uh, look at these signatures and the dates on them before they ever take into account the reasons for why someone would need to take out the loan. And and Nora is is more wrapped in the in the service that this loan is going to do, the good that she's trying to do with it, and less worried about the moralistic side of like needing to needing to sign something to spare her father the anxiety of it. Mm -hmm. And so, one of the things that ends up being sort of odd and complicated about the show is the way that the situation is resolved. Because for uh, such a progressive play making some very bold-for-the-time comments about marriage and giving Nora so much power, the blackmail part of the show is resolved utterly separate from Nora herself and by a woman and a man coming together in a relationship rather than splitting apart. I'm speaking, of course, of how Christine is really the hero of the play in a moment that is a little deus machina, a little bit just sort of <laughs> saved out of the blue by the fact that Christine and Krogstad, apparently the story goes that they were 
together for for a while when they were much younger, but Christine left Krogstad to marry a richer man, and now Krogstad he comes back at this present moment of the play, and he's feeling he feels slighted by that, and she says, "Well, I had my brothers to take care of, I had a dying parent to take care of, your prospects weren't good, I had to do what I had to do, but now my husband's dead, and I want to be with you." And this, in sort of an Ebenezer Scrooge, right, uh, his melts heart, the Grinch, cold heart. his heart goes <laughs> yeah. three sizes. Krogstad changes his mind and decides uh, not only to not um, in, not enforce the uh, or not not to go through with the blackmail, not to actually let it be known what Nora has done in the fraud, but also on Christine's note to leave the letter that explains it all because Christine really wants Torvald and Nora to sort of have it out and have everything out on the table. It's just sort of odd that the blackmail part of the plot is resolved in a, in a way that doesn't include Nora at all. Right, right. Well, there is, there is, I almost feel like there's two plays in this play and, there, and one of them is a very well-made play. Um, it's, it's a play with a lot of kind of intrigue, a couple convenient truths and all of them kind of wrapping around each other with, with lies and secrets and all those lies and secrets coming to light. And, and, and in that, that vein, uh, uh, Mrs. Linda or Christine, uh, really is the kind of, uh, sleeper cell or the the silver bullet for, for this, this play to, uh, to come to its fruition because yeah, she, she, uh, both, both she and Krogstead, seem to fall genuinely in love with each other again. Like there's, there's, there's a lot for, uh, for Christine in that relationship as well, being that in, in a society dominated by families and, and dominated by men, she, she is in need of some security. And so she, she finds Krogstead again and they live presumably happily ever after somewhere. Krogstead gives up the, the blackmail and she cues, as you said, she cues off the revelation at the end of the play. Um, when all the truth comes to light. And then there's the like last 20 minutes of the play. Yeah, really its own play. <laughs> really its own play where and 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 it's it's dealt with in the lines even where uh, Nora says um, something to the effect of we've never really had a real conversation where we talk about something and get to the bottom of it. We've just been kind of play acting for the last eight years of our marriage. And for the for the last 20 minutes of the play that goes away. They, they have this as level a conversation as they've ever had in the course of the play between Nora and Torvald that really kind of feels completely different from the, the kind of nervous, again, veneer-preserving energy of the first part of the play. Yeah, it's interesting that the moment where the blackmail is solved is not what anybody in their right mind would call the climax of the show. And yet it is the moment where the existent not existential, the external threat to the marriage, to the home is resolved. The external threat is taken care of at that point. But that is definitely not the climactic turning point of the show. The climactic turning point of the show is the confrontation between Nora and Torvald. So what is the threat? What is the problem? What is the conflict that is resolved, brought to a head, challenged, you know, at its most uh, sharp, contrasting moment. Well, it's an internal threat. And the internal threat is, frankly, the way that Torvald treats Nora. Yeah, From the beginning of the script. I mean, the first beat of the show is him harping on her for spending money. 
Yeah, no, she comes in, she's preparing for Christmas and presents and all these things for the children, and and he continuously is is saying, boy, you just really can't hang on to money, can you? You're always spending it, same as your father, he puts down her father as well, um, and just over and over kind of beats her <laughs> beats her over the brow with this over and over throughout the play. And of course, we know pretty quickly into the play that she's in fact skimping parts of what he's giving her to pay off the debt uh, for the loan that she has, that she took out to take take care of him as well which immediately is is part of the power dynamic right so if we look at this internal conflict in their marriage the play opens with an expression of power Torvald is giving Nora the money that she needs for everything for her own entertainment of course but then also all the things of the house the housekeeping the the groceries the Christmas gifts all of that money i.e. power comes from Torvald to Nora and the play is immediately set up in a power dynamic one over the other the conflict begins the next beat of it is that we learn Nora is subverting that power dynamic in a way that Torvald knows nothing about. He thinks he's giving her money for X, but she, as an expression of her own power, is not using the money in that way. She's using the money to pay off part of a loan and then desperately trying to get all the other things that she's supposed to get with the money. Right, right. So so the money is a big part of the... the uh, oppression of Torvald <laughs> uh, throughout the play. And then there's also just the... the uh, aggressive mansplaining that happens <laughs> through the whole play and and just kind of grooming that he does of her all the time there's a, a uh one of the big pivots of this uh, relationship is this dance that Nora is trying to put together for a fancy dress party she's going as uh, a, a kind of Italian dancer and it's a very specific dance and uh she, while she's using it to distract Torvald from opening the letter that Dogstead sent which is a uh, you know <laughs> again part of the necessary plot of the of the play it's it's uh distinct how much he tries to control her in the dance and how much she knows that he's watching her and and controlling how she does it he explains how to dance um this dance and to be less manic be more this be more that so over and over we see Torvald just kind of pushing in and controlling her calling her kind of pet names like uh oh, what's the, the pet the, names the pet oh, names gosh there's my squirrel. little squirrel my yep. little skylark yeah it's, yeah it yeah. is just, it's gross right <laughs> it's and, and hard to listen to it is hard to listen to and part of what we see nora doing is operating in in that system of like knowing she has power some power with these names and so she tries to use those names to to manipulate torvald a little bit she tries Again, to use subverting the power dynamic right the mm -hmm. language that torvald uses to control her the pet names the ooey gooey my little boo 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 sort of child talk sort of language he uses with her she yep. subverts and uses that to her own ends when she uses the pet names of the child talk to try to convince him not to open the letter to keep Krogstad on. Mm-hmm. And all, and all of that begins to come to a head towards the end of the play where the service that she's trying to do with that is to maintain this perfect family they have. And when it, when it comes to light that he's not going to do the same work that, that when, when he... 
there's the, help me out with the phrase because it's it's escaping me at the moment. The like marvelous miracle or something like that. Oh yeah, that the wonderful the thing. The wonderful thing. She keeps talking about this wonderful thing at the end of the play, and that wonderful thing is that she thinks when all this comes to light, that Torvald will step out in front of her and say, "This is in fact all my fault. I'm going to protect the family and her, and step out in front of it and take all the blame, and that will sink him." Um, and so again, part of this like ideal family that she's trying to create. She's she's working, subverting the system, trying to function in this system to try to stop that from happening. She doesn't want him to take the fall. And yet when all the light, all of this comes to light, he's not he he proves that he was not going to take the fall. He's going to kind of get move her to the sidelines, take the kids away from her, figure out how to cover this all up, put it back in the shadows and try to figure out a way out. And that's part of the cue that shakes up. She realizes um that these these living into these systems is not healthy, that she has to find a different way to be human. <laughs> yeah, there's this moment, once the revelation has happened, where Nora is describing the wonderful thing that she expected Torvald to do. Well, if this is our power dynamic, where you are the caretaker and I'm just part of the caretaken, then when the threat arrives, you as the caretaker ought to take on the threat. And of course, when the blackmail actually happens, Torvald blames her for it. He's going to basically just turn over and allow Krogstad to get whatever he wants. He's going to make sure that if it comes out, it's on her. He's very upset during that moment. So that reveals that that is sort of a false reality. And she confronts him about it after the good news has come and they're not at all in all that much trouble. And, uh, she says that she expected him to sort of step in and take the blame, take the fall. And he says, I'd gladly work night and day for you, Nora, bear sorrow and want for your sake. But no man would sacrifice his honor for the sake of one he loves. And Nora's response, one of the great lines in dramatic literature, I think, it is a thing hundreds of thousands of women have done. Yeah. Yep. No, that's... She that's... notes the the inequality, the imbalance of that situation. Torvald says, I wouldn't give up all of myself for you. What are you, nuts? And Nora says, that's what every wife in our society is expected to do. Give up every ounce of who she is. She's no longer Nora, her own woman. She's his little squirrel, his little skylark, his little dancing thing. Yeah, yeah, and even yeah, the language that he uses to describe her dancing and and the most there there's like a specific scene that like all of it comes to a head and he really like leans into ownership language, um, talking about like how you you are the most beautiful thing I own and just all all the of of <laughs> of that that this dynamic comes to light in there and and then she launches this 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 great beautiful discursus on on that that leads to that lines millions of women have done just that that we have that millions of women have uh sacrificed themselves to that point for male-dominated society and you can see it come through as Torvald realizes the fact that they're no longer in trouble and his tone changes from reproach and demand to this sort of almost unbearable uh paternal quite unbearable if you want to throw up a little (laughs) listen to this line this is after he's discovered that they're not in trouble anymore and he's quote-unquote forgiven her he says 
There is something so indescribably sweet and satisfying to a man in the knowledge that he has forgiven his wife, forgiven her freely with all his heart. It seems as if that he had made her, as it were, doubly his own. He has given her a new life, so to speak, and she is, in a way, become both wife and child to him. So you shall be for me after this, my scared, helpless little darling. That's disgusting. It is. Yeah. And I think that's that's what's that's part of that I feel like that monologue or close to that monologue feels like the end of a play that is not a feminist realist play. Right? Like you get to the end of that and perhaps there's the moment where you see Nora sad at the end of the play or like still trapped in the doll's house at the end of the play. Perhaps we reflect for a moment on how painful it is for her to be living in this way. And 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 yet what is happening during that scene, that long monologue, she's changing out of her uh, party dress, this dancing dress, and she comes back in her own clothes and she says, no, 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 we're going to it's we're not going to bed. We're talking about this. And that that so that that like really lame in that that monologue that you just read um really laying into the theme of of Torvald's perceived ownership of Nora and and all that he can do for her is immediately n- not just subverted but flipped and we enter a different phase of the play yeah I, I love the way that you noted how Ibsen is using the costume change to signal the change in power dynamics because what Nora is wearing throughout the play is a fairly important part of her power relationship with Torvald she's they're constantly looking towards this moment where she's going to put on this beautiful costume dress and go to this party which is the beat before this scene this confrontation scene and so she's wearing Ibsen describes it as sort of like an Italian costume dress and she's danced this very specific dance that you described earlier sort of puppet-like him telling her exactly all the moves exactly the speed and all that they've come back from the party where all that happened they've discovered the blackmail he's yelled at her the blackmail has been solved and now he's turning into his I own you but I love you and I've forgiven you for your faults all this stuff that I just read that makes me want to puke but as you say during that scene She's off stage changing out of the party costume dress, right out of the dollhouse dress, and into what Ibsen describes as just everyday dress, the dress that she's going to leave the house in. And that metaphor of how things are shifting now. Now she's not dressed up for him anymore. And even as he reaches out to her and what he, I hope, the best version of him, thinks is his important role, his genuine love for her showing through at this moment, that's the best version of him. Even as he's reaching out in that way, her costume is shifting to signify her internal shift away from being dressed up in the dollhouse party dress for him into the everyday garb that she's going to go out into the world in. Right. No, it's a, it's a powerful visual sim- symbolism in that moment. And, and uh, that's, I mean, part of the, brief aside, that's part of the cool thing about theater. You can do things like Whoa. that. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> <laughs> And 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 that's just also just a blessedly uh, a, a relief filled moment. We've just spent like probably the past fifteen minutes of the play 
with uh, Torvald expounding from from when he found the letter uh, and and he's exploding and then he gets the letter that that Krogstad has is gonna drop it all and he's just been talking for the last like 15 minutes and finally Nora comes back and says okay we're done we're, we need to talk about this and you're like oh thank thank goodness thank goodness <laughs> yeah I don't I don't know at what point in reading the script that Ibsen was writing uh, Susanna Ibsen's wife said <laughs> if you don't let her leave I'm leaving you but I feel the same way. It's right got to be around there. this moment where it's like I can't finish this play if she doesn't leave him. Right. Like, it's just, it's it's unbearable. And and I do want to recognize that some of that is probably how it rings to modern ears. He sure. seems especially controlling, especially gross and paternalistic and patronizing on our modern ears. I suspect that the impact of some of that language would have been less in 1879, but I don't think it would have been nothing because it does seem clear that Ibsen is taking the attitude of society at the time, which is that husband is basically both husband and lover and caretaker and father to his wife. That was the societal role. And he takes that and, and just emphasizes it a little bit. Well, this is how you think about your wives. So what if the language for you men out there of what you think about your wives were something you actually said? This is how you might sound. And it sounds especially gross now, but I do think even back then it would have sounded gross. Yeah, it's certainly heightened. It's about the most heightened language that there is in this in the script. This really kind of flowery, poetic um uh I will protect you like a like a dove that I rescue from a hawk sort of sort of language and it and, and I I agree. It's, it's almost as if Ibsen is kind of leaning into it a little bit and really cuz Ibsen's not known for like, you know, He's a realism uh, writer. He focuses on realism, but I think this is very symbolic and 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 leaning in to just a little bit pushing the realism to drive home the point. Yeah, he kind of helped to imagine and found what is basically all psychological drama now, sort of kitchen sink drama. And and these European plays that were coming out at the time all had to follow this very strict interpretation of theater and status quo. And beyond just the feminist overtones of the play that caused audiences to protest. The other thing that people didn't like a lot was the fact that we were seeing into this family's personal, private like. It felt it felt sort of voyeuristic to audiences of the time and, and sort of scandalous that, oh, we're seeing them in their home talking about mm-hmm. their marriage? My goodness. Right, right. There's there's a lot of distinction placed on the times when they're alone um, and, and, and the weight of that aloneness. So, Jackson, we're reacting very strongly to the... Uh, patronizing, paternalistic, male patriarchy themes of the play and Nora throwing off all those and claiming her identity for her own. But I do want to return to that quote I gave from Ibsen uh, right after the context, which was that Ibsen did not intend to write a feminist play. That was not, he sort of felt like he stumbled into it or that's how people interpreted it after the fact. But that's not necessarily what he was after. So... Is there something else that this play might be about that we could say is more closely related to what Ibsen intended? I mean, I think all interpretations of the play nowadays tend towards this very feminist interpretation of the play, which is great. But what what would is there a different thing that maybe Ibsen was writing towards? 
Well, uh, uh, some of what she ends up talking about at the end of the play. So, so part of the bargaining, yeah, I think yes. Uh, to to answer your actual question before I jump off on this on this trail. Um, so it's certainly dealing with other themes as well. Part of what um, Nora recants from is society's uh, bill of goods. Um, to to the characters at the end. So so Torvald is is essentially broken at the end, which is also delightful to see after that long monologue that Jacob read. And, We're and being Torvald. very hard on Torvald. I'm being hard he on agree- Torvald. He deserves it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, um, the best version of him is that he truly loves her and that this is sure. just a bad, unhealthy expression of love. But I gotta be honest, that's the very best version. That's and I'm not best. sure that's the right version. Yeah. <laughs> Nora yeah. definitely doesn't think that. Right, right, and and so so at the end of the play, he's very broken. Uh, I I think I think you're right to say that he clearly loves her. It's just a it's just a kind of perverted love, maybe not perverted, a, a broken. Or, love. Um, I mean, if I were Nora, I would say it's not that you love me; it's that you like owning me. Like loving, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 good. Um, he's so he's bargaining with her at the end, and he kind of goes beat by beat about the things that matter to him, right? Law, religion, morals. Um, and he says, so so you must have some sort of law that you're following, right? The law to uh, being a, a wife and a mother. This is the this is the highest ground for you. Um, and she says, no, I have a primary law to be human and to figure out what humanity is. Um, he says, well, then there must be religion. Right, you have to have some sort of religion around which you structure your life. And she says, I don't know anything about religion besides what you know my pastor back at home said to me when I was confirmed long ago. So that's something I gotta figure out too. I gotta figure out what religion is, what 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 part of religion uh applies to me, if any, and, and how to live within that structure. And then he says, Well, then certainly you must have a moral center, right? Like morals that guide you that say you can't leave. And she says, I don't, I don't know. I haven't been alone enough with myself to even know what the moral center is. So some of what is being talked about in there is, I think, Ibsen critiquing the the bill of goods that society gives you. You know, you're born into society, specifically in this case, a male-dominated, law-abiding society, and... Uh, and you don't necessarily get the choice. Um, to certainly Nora didn't get the choice to figure out um, what she is in that society and how best to honor her primary uh, directive or law to be the best human that is possible. I think you're right that that beyond just the power relationships between men and women, there's a co- more core part of the play that's about the power relationships between society and the self that that Ibsen might be saying we we surround ourselves with these these institutions that make it impossible for us to figure out who we are for ourselves, to strive to be as uniquely ourself as possible and to figure out who we really are. Right. I mean, that's one of the things that Nora says that she's leaving to do is she's got to figure out who she is because she's felt like I've just been a doll. First I was my dad's doll and then they passed me off to you and I've been your doll. I need to figure out who I am beyond just being a doll and and uh, look I'm a person that I'm I'm a straight white man I'm in society I'm not very many people's doll you know what I mean I, I've got <laughs> I have the privilege to sort of discover who I am for myself and so the Ibsen speaking about 
um, the the need for us to give room for people to discover themselves, to live as an individual, is is something that speaks, I think, especially to disenfranchised groups, which is why the play has such a, a feminist, progressive, clear interpretation. Because at the time and now, include true still, women are in some ways a disenfranchised group. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That 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 kind of through line of finding yourself, figuring out how to be yourself in society, and also the ways that society prevents you from being good. Moral is a part of this play. Um, and we see across the board, no one is moral in this play, besides maybe Nora. I think you could probably well, make an argument that, that's for Nora. So, that's interesting because the morality is, I think you're right, defined in different ways by different groups. There is this societal view of morality that is specifically interpreted through the lenses of control and power dynamics. When Krogstad is blackmailing Nora, he says, you know, the the law is going to punish you for this if I choose to bring it up in court. And she says, shouldn't there be a law where a woman can just choose to save her husband and her father on her own? And Krogstad says, the law doesn't really care what you were after. It doesn't care about your intentions, even though your intentions are good. And that may make you moral in your own eyes. That's not the society or the law, what they care about or deem as moral. Your reputation is going to go down the tubes, even though you were trying to do something good. And I also think of this like kind of, uh, uh, again, we've talked about the law being based in a masculine mindset. There's also like a masculinity issue in this play, too. I'm thinking specifically of uh, Dr. Rank. They're like family friend who is with them uh, many times throughout the play, uh, and and he's he's in the conversation. It's clear that they've known him for a long time, and he's very ill. Um, he's dying of some sort of uh, bone disease brought about by uh, the the medicine's confusing. Um, consumption, <laughs> consumption of the spine. Yeah, yeah. Brought Which, about by does some... that not sound terrible? It does. You hear yeah. the word consumption of the spine? I just shudder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he decides to kind of he's 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 quickly dying. We know that he's dying soon, and he decides to just basically sequester himself and go away. He specifically tells Nora to not let Torvald come and visit him when he does that. If you didn't because... like Torvald already, <laughs> Doctor Rank, his best friend in the whole world, tells Nora that he doesn't want Torvald to see Doctor Rank himself as he's dying. Because Torvald like hates ugly things, right? Ugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, he he doesn't he doesn't want Torvald to see him, and he even he even says like when he drops off a, a calling card with a black cross on it, you'll know just never to see me again. This is my goodbye. And when they receive those, they do towards the end of the play. He says a kind of a goodbye to them. Not really. He shows up for one last time and leaves his cards unbeknownst to them. They open the mail and see the cards and they both say, well, that's kind of it. I mean, that's the way it should be. There should be no words for a goodbye or something like that. That's not healthy either. (laughs) So so I think all all over the place in in this play, we're seeing the system not working to bring about what they think the system wants to bring about. That's interesting. I, I, I truly am not quite sure what to do with Dr. Rank in this play. 
he 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 doesn't seem to relate very specifically to either the internal conflict between Torvald and Nora's marriage or the external conflict of the blackmail. There's kind of some they feel to me sort of loose attempts to bring him into both of those right, plots right. that I don't I don't feel like they pan out real well. And so I'm I'm not sure what to do with it. I'm also not sure what to do with that interpretation because another probably feasible interpretation is that Dr. Rank's final scene in the play when he knows he's going to die and he's leaving them forever is his most happy, satisfied scene. And perhaps his decision to leave the world just as he wants to with just this black cross on a card is his claiming himself against society's wishes and expectations. I really don't know. He's a very confusing character to me. He is, yeah. There, th- so, so I haven't read this play since college, and reading it this, I'd forgotten a lot of the details around around it. And reading it this time, I was like, "Is Doc?" There's a lo- a bunch of times he. It's clear that he loves Nora, and he says over an, a bunch of characters say that they would kill for not a bunch. Torvald and Miss Doctor Rank say that they would kill for Nora. And for a while, I was like, "Wait a minute, does Doctor Rank go and kill Krogstad in this play again?" <laughs> <laughs> So I agree. He's he's and he he has another pretty big purpose, which is to show Nora um, again trying to use her relationships in this dollhouse, uh, in this veneer, to try to get him to help her, and that ends up falling apart too. Doctor Rank confesses his feelings for her, and she realizes that this that's a bridge too far. We and that's we where I this. see Rank. Uh, sort of collide with the internal power dynamic conflict of Torvald and Nora's marriage most specifically. Because that is a moment where this kind of relationship between men and women is examined more fully in Nora's relationship with Rank. Nora really loves Rank as a friend, values him as one of the most important friends in their life, looks to him for help in this horrifying moment. And his response is to say, well, I love you just like Torvald does. I also have this romantic, sexual, attracted uh, version of you in my head. And Nora, even in somebody she thinks is a dear friend, cannot escape that power relationship. And that ends up being three for three of the men in the play, not counting the porter who has like two lines, three for three of the men in the play all have a desire to control and manipulate Nora in some way. Krogstad more obviously as a blackmail, Torvald more insidiously as a husband, and even Rank in this sort of reach across, I'm I'm your I'm I'm in love with you. Right. I'm dying and I need you to know this sort of moment where he expects her to react in a certain way and she doesn't. Right. Yeah. It's just a pressure cooker from all sides. You know, she's, she's attacked from all sides and, and trying to figure it, figure out. And it's, and it's, and which, which adds to the relief at the end of the play that she figures out a way out. Right. Like, like I, again, I haven't read it in a while and I had just palpable relief (laughs) towards the end of the play that she, she, she figures out a way to wake up a way to, and not only wake up because that sounds like like it's all on her, but have the bravery to confront, the bravery to stand up and and see each of these uh, relationships that aren't aren't working, that, that this can't function anymore, and even there, there's so so the hopeful ending at the play we've talked about before. She kind of sets up this like little bit of hope at the end of the play that maybe they could change enough, a miracle could happen, that they could change enough to to be back together again, and and. Uh, Torvald asks her, what would that miracle be? And she replies, um, and I'm just going to paraphrase it again, but 
that we would respect each other enough that this would be a marriage. Um, and and that that like powerful noting that this that whatever this uh, quote and, and marriage, that becomes the new definition of a wonderful thing. It's no yeah. longer that Torvald would sort of take his role as a man and and own up to all the problems and fill that false societal narrative of marriage, but instead that their marriage would be an equal one as partners. They redefine this phrase, a wonderful thing. And the final line of the play is Torvald alone in their apartment, sort of saying a wonderful thing. That's what it's going to take, a wonderful thing, which is a lovely reinterpretation of that phrase, gives a lot of weight to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and really just that, that whole last scene, there's amazing lines in that whole last scene around that word play of the greatest miracle or the wonderful thing. There's also the, 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 the strong line that she says, you've become a stranger to me and I don't receive help from strangers Um, over and over as Torvald is bargaining to try to like say, what if you need help again? Can I write to you? Can I send you money? And she says, I don't receive help from strangers. And that's that just, you feel that kind of in the core of yourself in that play, in that part. And, it's lines like that, of course, that that caused the uproar back when the play was written. It seems like she's become, uh, at the time, the sort of societal definition of this irresponsible runaway, you know, wife who's who's not the you know uh, failing in terms of her moral duties and her religious duties and all of this stuff. Uh, but Ibsen does does a lot of careful work to set that up so that you can see that's not the case. One great example is he includes this lovely extended scene with Nora playing hide-and-seek with her children. And it's very clear how well, how deep the love is for her children. He includes the fact that Nora's in this situation in the beginning was that she was willing to take on an extraordinary debt to save her husband's life. I mean, Ibsen does a lot of work to make it clear that Nora is not like a sociopath. The society at the time would probably have called her that. Or right. a psychopath. Or cra- In fact, as I recall, the real-life woman and story upon whom the play was based, the husband ended up sticking his wife um, in a sanitarium, a sanatorium, whichever of the ones is like the, a crazy house and he because that was how society would have viewed her but ibsen does a lot of work to say Nora's somebody who that cares about her family and loves her family deeply and what happens at the end of the play is a result of the very real internal conflicts of the power between her and torvald and not because she has a moral failing or she's evil or she's crazy I think we're we're, we're kind of ha- having to wrap up soon. There's uh, there's this is this is one of the like the the rich plays of theater history, and there's there's so much good character study. Great commentaries have been written about this play. All sorts of big themes are sussed out in the minutia of individual interactions that we have not had time to talk about, alas. Um, so if there is more that you would like to talk about this play, if there is uh, some subtleties you'd like to suss out or anything at all, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We love to keep talking about this play with you. You can find us at the username at NoScriptPodcast on all of those sites. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about A Doll's House with you. And if you'd like to recommend this podcast to your family or friends, you only have a couple more episodes to do it in this yeah. season. <laughs> We're talking about Doll's House Part 2 next week. And we got a special episode after that. Guest, special guest episode, not a episode. A special guest episode. <laughs> That's what it's called now. It's canon. <laughs> it's a episode. <laughs> 
And then, of course, after that is the last episode of the season. So you better hurry up and send them our way. You can send them to Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or where we're hosted on Podbean. They could also just link up with us on Facebook where there's the episode... Uh, the, a script that we're going to be talking we released the name of the script we're going to be talking about on the Wednesday before and then there's a link to the right episode on the Monday it comes out woof I, I got there <laughs> you got it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and look forward to next week where we're going to be talking about A Doll's House Part 2 and uh, likely continuing some of these themes and, and, and parts of the conversation into that one as well so kind of bookmark your calendar around that all righty, until then, I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you for listening to No Script the Podcast. Oh, bye bye.